I do not envy you the headache you will have when you awake. But for now, rest well and dream of large women. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. May I live a thousand years and never hunt again. Hello, my name is Nigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. I mean, I'm so sorry. I could go on forever. This week, Rob and I will be covering Rob Rainer's 1987 fancy classic, The Princess Bride, a movie that, if not already abundantly clear, might well be the most quotable movie ever made. I mean, it was impossible. I could not pick one quote for this film. And to be honest, I think I did really well stopping there because I could have just quoted the whole goddamn film to you. It dropped like just an hour and a half podcast of me just delivering the script. It's like you're the classical <laughs> version of a podcast at the moment. You literally, <laughs> if somebody wants to know, they're just the ins and outs of this film. They just have to listen to that first introduction. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that sums it up pretty well. No, but honestly, jokes aside, when I was re-watching this in particular, I was like, this might be the most quotable movie of all time. Like the only film I could think of that jumped out to me as being comparable is maybe The Big Lebowski. But this yeah. is definitely in that pantheon of most quotable films, 100%. Oh, Absolutely. I, I love I, I love all the quotes and I'm with you. I was thinking to myself, I'm so glad you're the one doing the intro because I couldn't pick out the first quote. Um, when it first started, when you first did your quote and I thought you were just going to stick at one, I was so <laughs> surprised you would do, you did the dream of large women quote. I think I picked that one first just because it, it was, you know, like you are, or, or you're obviously, you're looking forward to the Inigo Montoya, you killed my father and all yeah. that jazz. But that was just one of the many that kind of jumped out at me. I also wanted to do the one about the classic blunder and never start a land war in Asia, but I really couldn't nail down his bizarro accent. So I was like, I'm not going to do Vizzini or whatever his name is. I'm going to draw the line there. Not that I was particularly good at those quotes, but Jesus Christ, there are levels. If you would have done the land war in Asia thing, would you have done the laugh to die thing where he's going, I was thinking about that, but I feel like you need the visual thing of me kind of rolling over. And of course, everyone's just listening to this. So I just feel like it just ended abruptly. So again, if I was going to do the court, I'd have to do the whole thing about, you know, getting into a battle to the death with a Venetian or whatever it is. So yeah, got to draw the line somewhere. But yeah, this film, not only is it maybe the, one of the most quotable films, I would actually argue, especially going back and rewatching it, that this might be in that rare air of potentially perfect movies. Now, when I say perfect movies, I don't mean necessarily the best. I just mean perfect in so much that it it just totally achieves what it's what it set, set out to do, essentially. You know, in the same kind of league, you say Back to the Future, I would say is an almost perfect film. I'm not saying it's the best film ever made, but it's an almost perfect film. And um, Predator, obviously we've, we've done podcasts on both of these and, you know, people, um, you know, might be like Predator really, but in terms of achieving their goal of creating the perfect monster movie, the perfect bee movie, I would say Predator absolutely nails it. And more importantly, I go back and I watch it. I'm like, I wouldn't change a single frame of this film. And it's the same with this. I wouldn't change a single frame. I can't imagine anyone else playing any of the characters. And it's just, it's just a big ass hug of a movie. It well, just, this film makes me so happy. It is a great movie. Perfect movie, I think is probably a stretch, but what I love, it's a perfect retelling. Because it, it, what I'm trying to say is, like, Peter Falk is doing, he's narrating the story to his grandson at the beginning. So of the sweet. So, such a great framing the device. The film is basically, like, so it skips things that he doesn't want to scare his grandson with. Do you know, 
things are just the film is actually just like to be told to, to the child so there's things that you wouldn't think work with the film but because it's being explained to a what a 10 year old nine year old boy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know what i mean he's he's like he's skipping the worst part of it and it's all just fun and it's uh, yeah exciting and it, it is like it is literally you are reading a story to your child on film it is done so well it is just it's it and that it, that that is smile to your face every time you you watch it. It's great. It does, and it, like that framing device in particular means that this film can get away with so much. Yeah, the fact that as you say, it's like this film is a movie. I, I would say it's almost like the quintessential family movie in so much that it is a movie literally for everyone. And there are bits where, as you say, you think, okay, th- this wouldn't be for a kid. And but then the kid overtly says it. Like you don't have to wait for the kids. It's like Fred Savage said, "Oh no, they're not kissing." But then it goes out of the way to like explain on on screen for you to say, "Oh, it is okay for a kid to like the romantic bits." But every time you know they're they're so self aware. Every time they think, "Oh, if a kid was watching this, he might suddenly go, oh, 'Oh, I'm losing interest,' or this isn't for me." It cuts back to Columbo reading Fred Savage from the Wonder Years, the book, as if saying, no, no, it's okay, I'll keep going, we'll get to the good bit soon. And it allows the film to tick so many, uh, this film is so many genres in one. And it's not bits of genres, it's literally th- like the whole genre. It's not like, oh, there's a bit of fancy. It's all, fa- I mean, it does. Like, there's fancy elements, there's romance, there's satire, there's comedy, and it's somehow all of these things. And not only that, but it's successfully all of these things. And it's all, as you say, framed within this kind of device of having our oh, granddad reading his kid a book. Yeah. And that allows, again, this film to... Because usually when you think of like a family film, like the perfect family films nowadays, you I immediately go to Pixar as, as the great example of, oh, there's bits for the kids and then there's bits for the adults. This film somehow pulls off that magic trick of the kids for the bit... The, sorry, the bits for the kids are somehow also the bits for the adults and vice versa. Yeah. It works on both levels. And how it gets away with the cheesy romance, the overtly kind of slapstick comedy, but then go into some surprisingly dark places later on. It pulls up all these things and somehow it all just feels natural. Well, that's what I wanted to say as well, because the way it was, as I said, it, it, it is basically just him reading to his grandson. But if you look at the subject matter as well, that it's it's been mm. lightened. Like, uh, you're kidnapping the princess to have her murdered so you can start a war with Gilda. You know, you know it's it's pirates, it's it's murder, it's a, it's revenge, it's adventure. <laughs> Everything that, it could be dark or it could, well, I mean, that, that fire swamp for a start. There are things like that, but it's all... Well, there's stuff in there that could down. scare kids. Yeah, exactly. But what I mean is it's still played down for for kids. And it all feels like it is, again, just a grandfather reading to his grandson. Well, again, like you said, like it works both ways because there's the bits early on when it like and again, it, it's almost because it has that cutaway to well, they, they never give a names, are they? It's just the grandfather and the, and the grandson, so Fred Savage and Columbo or Peter Falk. And it's just it allows the film to go so heavy and so cheesy on the romance because it knows it's got that cutaway. So if anything, it's like we're not just going to do romance. We're going to turn it up to 100. They're going to be so in love. It's going to be the music's going to be overtly kind of cliche almost. But just as you think, oh, this is getting ridiculous, it cuts back to Fred's like, oh, dude, this is too much. And it's like, no, no, it keeps going. But then the other end of the spectrum is when things are getting quite scary or quite dark, again, it cuts away. It's like when I was younger, the, the bit that used to freak me out was the machine. 
And it's, I think the concept of it is pretty horrifying. Just the fact that he's tied, he's like kind of, I don't know, tied down to this machine, which sucks literally years of your life. And that howl, that scream is absolutely horrifying. And just as you think, my God, this is getting dark. Again, it cuts back to Fred Savage saying, whoa, 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 Wesley can't be dead. And it's like, oh, maybe it's too much excitement for a kid and stuff. And so, no, 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 you know, keep reading kind of thing. So it's just, it's this kind of like release valve where it's like every time it allows the film to kind of turn up the romance. It allows it to turn up the almost, you know, the the kind of dark fantasy elements because it knows it's always got that release valve where it can go back to the modern day or quote unquote modern day, the eighties. And it's like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's just a book. No worries. You mentioned the machine. I do want to like, there's, there's lots to cover with this film. I know that because you've already mentioned Mm -hmm. the machine now, as you said, it was it's scary to to think of that this is the thing sucking life out of you. But mm-hmm. as an adult watching this now, I am questioning how that machine works. Like literally, <laughs> they turn the dial up, it opens mm-hmm. water, water goes through a mill, and all of a sudden he's getting life sucked out of him. I'm sat there thinking, and I appreciate everything else in this film. <laughs> like it's all fantastical, but I'm thinking, how the hell does this machine work? How does this machine work? But then I guess the other dark part of the film is is explained in such gruesome detail. The bit when he's on the bed and oh, Prince Humperton comes in to, to, to the pain. Yeah, that's some dark shit. Yeah. He's like, yes, yes. Next you'll cut off my ears. Wrong! You'll keep your ears so that women, you'll be able to hear the women scream as they walk past you in the street. I'm like, oh my God. He's gonna, so he's going to cut off your feet, your arms, your ears. No, sorry, not your ears, your nose, your lips. I was like, oh God, dude, that sounds absolutely horrifying. <laughs> but yeah, they just like, yeah, we, you, again, you can just keep it in the room, in the film because it gets that dark part and either you get that cutaway or something ridiculous happens because again, when they turn up the slapstick, it's actually really, they really go for it. Like the, the, the famous As You Wish scene when she pushes him down the hill and suddenly it's like a Monty Python film. They're, they're rolling down that hill for what feels like days. I'm like, Jesus Christ, they're going to break each other's necks. This is this ridiculous. Feels like, though. This film feels like, when you've got everything, like you just said, pushing down the hill and you've got the, the rocks that are clearly styrofoam and <laughs> yeah, yeah. all this jumping around and stuff. This film clearly feels like a panto. Like a it does at times. Yeah, it does, and, and it's and it's again. It goes back to that thing about the kids getting engaged in the pantomime, just like oh, like he's behind you. You know, where's the bad guy? Mm-hmm. The good guy shows up. Everyone, everyone's elated because the good guys here. But mm-hmm. to start off with the film as well. You, you're meant to not know that the dread pirate Robert is the good guy. You yeah, yeah. not know it's Wesley, even though mm-hmm. when you first see him in, in the mask or not. And obviously, we all know it's Carrie Ells, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh is it God. Carrie Ells or Carrie Alwes? I'm never Elwes. sure how to pronounce I it. I always say Ells. Just, just. I see. I started saying Carrie Alwes, and I'm like, did I hear that somewhere? Or have I just decided? No, this is the right way. This is the correct way to oh, pronounce his my, name. My I have no idea. Is Wes, so you're just calling me like the Wes, Alwes in Spanish. Alwes, Alwes. Oh no, Dios mío, Alwes. Let's go with that. I'm sticking with I'm sticking with Alwes now, 100 because of that. It's but the introduction of, of him, you know, it's him because it, my god, that guy's got some smoldering eyes. Oh, so like they might be the most beautiful on screen couple of all time, like Princess Buttercup and Wesley, or the Dread Pirate Roberts, whatever you want to call him. Uh, what, what is it? Um, Carrie Alwes and uh, Robin, Robin Wright. Wright. Yeah, god damn, 
they are good looking in like what what year was this film released? Nineteen eighty seven, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, and that's one of the the issues. I mean, the great thing is again, like you said, the the panto aspect. But it's almost like nowadays you'd watch it, and I think most kids would go, "Oh, it's like a superhero," because he shows up, he's got a mask. She should know, but everyone plays, everyone like just goes with it now. It's like Batman shows up. It's like, well, that's clearly Bruce Wayne, but because it's a superhero, everyone's fine. And let's make no mistakes. He's borderline a superhero. Like the whole point of him, he's like, he's the most handsome. He's the most romantic. He's the, you know, he, he beats Fezzik in a fight. He beats Vecini in a game of wits. He beats Inigo in a, in a sword fight. He is literally the best at yeah, everything. Yeah. He yeah. is fundamentally, fundamentally a fantasy superhero. And he's got the master, you know, obviously the look is more inspired by say like a Zorro. But I think most kids have watched today go like, oh, it's like old timey Batman. It's just old timey Batman who's just good at fucking everything and nobody knows who he is because he's got a little mask over his eye. Well, that's that's fine. Was, Let's run with it. Batman was based on Zorro, wasn't he? In a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And this is very much that that kind of vibe. But like like you said, there's such there's such a beautiful couple. And sorry to, to butt in, but it's just to follow on along those lines. It's just one of the great things about this film is the fact that everybody in it, and it might seem a bit harsh. But nobody went on to be massive stars. They've all done fine in their own yeah. fields. Uh, you know, you think of someone like uh, Robin Wright in particular who's made a bit of a comeback recently. I guess a lot of people would know her more from like um, Wonder Woman, for instance. Yeah. Or um, she was in Blade Runner 2049, I think, as well. But if you think, if, if say you were re-watching this film and say, realistically, it could have been, say, Tom Cruise and Demi Moore, they would like overpower it almost because you would just go back, oh, it's that Tom Cruise film or Demi Moore was in it. But because I just associate Carrie Elwes with this character, I associate Princess Buttercup with Robin Wright or, you know, Andre the Giant. You just think Andre the Giant, you just think of this movie. I think that just makes it all the more perfect that rather than me thinking, oh, I'm watching these characters, I just think of, oh, it, it, oh look, it's it's the Dread Pirate Roberts or it's Wesley because their star power doesn't overburden the film. Like the real star of the film is probably Rob Rayner considering when it was made. Yeah. But it's just such a shame because, you, you, I mean, it, obviously it's worked out for us in the long run because I love watching this film. And as I said, there's no distractions. There's no barrier between me and the film. There's no Tom Cruise who I have to deal with. But I just think with Carrie Elwes in particular, when I go back and watch this film, and I apologize again if I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly for the rest of this podcast, but it is what it is, especially now we know it's Elwes, um, is the fact that he should have been a bigger star. But I think the problem rather like you go back and watch his film, it's like this guy's like leading man material through and through. But I think they doubled down on the comedic side rather than the smoldering hero side. So yeah. when he chose to do um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, I think that almost kind of cemented his place as being like people thought of him as this comedic hero. Whereas I think if he'd come off the back of this and done like, you know, uh, God, what were they doing in 19, you know, early 90s, like The Shadow or The Phantom or something ridiculous like that. But if he'd done a traditional hero role, I think it could have been a completely different career for him because again, I look at him in this film, I'm like, God damn, man, that is, that's a handsome dude right there. Uh, but it's a shame because nobody's really gone on to do anything massive after this. I need to interject because you've gone about his handsomeness. But what I will say at the first, Jesus Christ, dude, you just went on a trail about the, how pretty a Carrie Alwes is and Robin Wright as a couple. Like, oh, my oh God, but they're so good. They, they, it's so good looking. I think, so again, I'm just like, why wasn't... You think of other movies around... See, I'm doing it again. Yeah, hang on. You think of, like, like um, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Why didn't we see another two or three films where Carrie Alwes and Robin Wright were together in a, a romantic comedy or an action film? I, I'm just surprised that never happened. But I think a part of it 
is because when this film was released, it was a relatively modest success. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like people was, you know, fell in love with this film immediately. It is like many of these films you go back and watch. It's a film where retrospectively through VHS, through TV, DVD, et cetera, et cetera, people have totally fallen in love with this film. But now, I mean, it is a cult movie, but I mean, the pe- people love this film. Yeah. People right. really love this film. And obviously I'm one of them. So what I have to say probably doesn't mean anything now because it probably had more impact about five minutes ago. <laughs> Start. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <All> right. <laughs> I want, totally fucked up for you. If I'm ever introduced on film, I want the cinematographer who did this to introduce me on film like he introduced Carrie Elwes. Because mm-hmm. every time that guy was introduced as the fanboy, Oh my mm-hmm. God, he was smoldering. Like just, the <laughs> like almost to a comedic level. Yeah. Have you ever seen um, wind? Oh. Is, do you know it, it reminds me of Top Secret when you would introduce Val Kilmer because Val Kilmer yeah, yeah, yeah. is handsome, mm-hmm. Elvis mm-hmm. Presley style guy. And every time yeah, yeah. they introduced it, the wind's blowing through the hair. The light dims down just to show mm-hmm. their eyes. And, oh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like um, have you seen? Have you seen Final Space on Netflix? Yeah. It's like Final Space when he does like yeah, he pulls the face and suddenly the wind shows up on his head, or like um, the Rock in Jumanji where one of his like abilities it's is smoldering. Yeah. Set. yeah, yeah, like it is literally like that. But it opens as you say. The first thing you see of him is like, all right, we're gonna have like two, three minutes of him just smoldering aggressively. But again, in a lesser film, that it would just kind of like you'd be like, oh, this is too cheesy, and especially like, and they really lean into it, like when. Like you say, he's smoldering nonstop. They've got soft focus on Princess Buttercup and the music is so on the nose, so ridiculously on the nose. But because they have those shifts in both theme, in genre and in tone, it somehow keeps working. Like this film really should be a mess. And what I found interesting was that uh, a couple of years ago, I finally got Bethan to watch this. But when I talked to her, I was like, have you seen this? She goes, I've seen bits and I, I wasn't sure about it. I was like, I totally get that. Because if you just watched a bit of this film, you'd be like, this is weird. Because if you watched like different bits, you'd be like, these all feel like they're from different films. Well, but not just that. It, it, like, it works as a whole. But if you watch it, like you pick a bit, without knowing the context of it, it feels like a made-for-TV film. Like with a, Yeah, a, no, a, I totally like, get that. So the fact that then it's not a made-for-TV film and you understand what they're doing with it. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. It is great. I want to actually bring up now my one of my favourite scenes of the film, and it's probably mm-hmm. going to be a lot of people's favourite scenes of the film, is the sword fight. Oh, it's brilliantly choreographed. It's fantastic. It is, it is fantastic, fantastically choreographed. By them two with two fencing champs, by the way. And I'll get mm-hmm. to more of that, in fact. But before that, before this film, my understanding of sword fighting or things like that is like Conan or mm-hmm. uh, the fantasy Highlander, yeah, Hi- yeah, Highlander, where they click swords three times, stab one person, and they die. Do you know what I mean? It's literal clicking, but there's no like, there's no defensing, there's no guarding. There's- well, no, they. I mean, in this, they literally comment on the different styles they're using yeah. as they're doing it, and of course, obviously, I love it's an old-fashioned film. Oh, sorry, I love his accent. Unless you have studied your Agrippa, which I have. <laughs> like, which I have. Yeah. I must tell you, you are so good. Why are you smiling? Because I am left. Because I'm not left-handed. It's like that whole scene. Obviously, it's it's beautifully choreographed. 
there's so much like and of course it's it's a, it's a throwback to you're talking like you know 40s and 50s movies like the old-fashioned swashbucklers yeah, it's, it's stuff errol, we, it's errol flynn, errol flynn. Yeah. yeah it totally is and it's stuff we're not accustomed to especially back in the 80s because as you say we were accustomed to conan and highlander you know and, and star wars even which back then was quite clunky in terms of the actual choreography yeah but what really makes it is the fact that you've got this fantastic choreography but at the same time the script is running at a thousand miles per hour. Like the script is literally never better than when they are in battle. You're not just, you don't just suddenly stop. Like you think of say something like, um, there are elements in say, uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. When Pirates of the Caribbean is at its best, you think they're having a sword fight, it's brilliant choreographed. And every so often they'll throw in a joke and you're like, oh, that's pretty good. This, they talk. There's like six jokes as they're fighting. It's unbelievably well-written. What you love is the fact that they are sword fighting. They're meant to be, not mortal enemies, but they're on opposite sides of this confrontation. <laughs> but they are so, uh, it's not enamored, what word am I, respectful of each other. They respect each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they respect each other's stance. They respect each other's skill. Do you know what I mean? Oh, straight away. Like you can yeah. see like in Ega Montoya when he's climbing up and, you know, it's like, oh, I'll help you up. And, but then as soon as he gives a speech, it's like, I swear on my father's grave that you will reach the top. And straight away, it's like, all right, I believe you. And that- he gives him a break. And they're just like, they have a little chat. They have a heart-to-heart immediately. It comes back to the cinematographer once again. Because when Inigo Montoya gives that, uh, I swear on my father, you will reach the top of life. The camera yeah, yeah. comes in, you get the smolder look again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's pretty, and like you said, like just before, he's like, I give you my word as a Spaniard. It's like, yeah, that's not going to fly, dude. Nobody trusts a Spaniard. But then all of a sudden, the lights go dim. It's like... I give you my word on my father's life. It's like, oh, dude, I, I've got to believe him. But then, like you said, like immediately, because that's like the first scene where they're on screen together, obviously. Yes. And you think of, um, what's his name? Is it Mand- Mandy Patinkin, who plays Inigo Montoya yes. and Carrie Almas? And their immediate, like, rapport, you know, their on-screen chemistry, it's just, it click. And it's not just, it's every character. As soon as they're on screen together, you feel like they've they've, already filmed four or five scenes and you're just like wait a minute no this is the first time they've been on screen yeah. together and already like you feel at home with those two well it's like yeah no more so than uh andre the giant who was fessic oh, dude fessic the giant and inigo montoya manny patinkin mm-hmm. their chemistry together they the way they are to get like the whole little rhyming scene that they were doing on the boat that it's was so charming off Vecini. and the fact that pissed him off made me happy mm-hmm. So yeah, and it's again, it's it's one of the like this film's again. Uh, I think it's ninety five minutes long, and one of the the, the greatest strengths of this film is something we've referred to in other films is the fact that the the narrative and the exposition is so economical. Like with just a few lines between Fasini, Fezzik, and Inigo, you immediately get the dynamic. Like they, there's no huge exposition dump about where they were. It's like I think Fasini refers to the fact that you were drunk and you were like you know in the circus or something silly, and because of their attitudes and of course, everything in this film is heightened. So the characters are all turned up to eleven. So you you can talk in broad strokes, but because that chemistry is just there immediately, it's like as soon as it starts, you're like, yeah, I totally get the dynamic yeah. and that works both amongst them and then between them and um wesley or the dread pirate roberts like there's no need for a big explanation as soon as on screen together you're like yeah this just feels right it just but feels you, natural you get the understanding with vicini as well it's uh what nagel says before they start their their duel i was gonna say little duel then but it's not <laughs> little duel yeah uh, before they start their duel and he says well i only work for vicini to pay the bills because there's not much money in revenge 
yeah, 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 yeah. Avengers and Peter Bills. So it's just like he's not doing it out of any kind of respect or anything for, for seeing it. It's literally just mm-hmm. because he needs to pay some bills, which is quite yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. about it back then. Like, what bills is he paying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, like you said, like with the cast, any other film, like, make no mistake. Andre the Giant is a god-awful actor. He's a god-awful actor. Yeah. But he has two things which really work in his favour. One, he's an actual giant, which is a huge thing. Like, nowadays you think, oh, you would have, like, CG or something. It's like, who would you... Like, if you're recasting this film, who the hell's playing Andre the Giant? Like, no. a known giant? Nobody. And before you, uh, the other before thing... You, the, sorry, before you go into the next thing, because you already mentioned he was an actual giant, I am going to steal a fact here. Uh, from okay. facts for everyone. It's the fact that Liam Neeson auditioned for the role at six foot four, and Rob Roy yeah, yeah. laughed at him because six foot four is still too small to play Vicini. Well, uh, it's it's a hundred percent. I mean, dude, I, I'm six foot seven. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big dude, but I'm not a like. There's a completely different. Like, even if you had uh, right to go back as a perfect example, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. There's um an Andre the Giant documentary. It was on HBO in America, and I think you can find it over here, maybe on Sky. And it's an absolute, like, it's an unbelievable watch. Even if, even if you're not interested in wrestling, you should totally go back and watch the Andre the Giant documentary because it's just such an interesting insight into what his life was like. But there was one wrestling match because he always said like everyone had the utmost respect for Andre the Giant because he was just so yeah. big. There's a wrestling match when he's in the ring with Big John Studd. Now Big John Studd is six foot eleven, yeah, mm-hmm. and and he said. They're doing an interview with Big John Studd. It's like because he was like, oh, I'm the giant. I'm six foot eleven, and I get in the ring, and he did this thing where he steps over the top rope, and he's like, Andre was like, that's my thing, and he said, you know, you look at him, and of course, I think even I think Big John Studd might have actually been a little bit taller than him, but there's he said, and you can see the video, he grabs Big John Studd by the chest, and all he does is just shake the shit out of him. And he said, I'm six foot 11. And it was like, I was being manhandled like I was a child yeah. because it's like, I'm tall and I'm big, but he's a giant. He said, he put his hands on me and just shook me. And it was just like, all of a sudden, you're just like, I have no defense. There's nothing. He's just, he's too big. He's too strong. He's a, I'm big. He's a goddamn giant. You know and that's the difference. Do you know how tall he is? Uh, seven foot or something? Yeah, he was seven foot four. Was he actually seven foot four? Yeah, the thing is, he never actually looks that tall because no. quite often he, he he stooped because of his bad posture and obviously he had a, a bad back. And we'll get to some of these impacts, I'm sure. But like I said, it's not about him necessarily even being tall. He's just ginormous. Mm. He's he's like he is literally like a fairy tale giant. But my second point was the fact that he's so charming. He's so utterly char- like. There's a great scene at the end of the film where they've not really spent much time together. But when Princess Buttercup is on the windowsill, window ledge, right? And Fezzik shows up with uh, the horses. Yeah. And he gives such a chance. He's like, I saw these horses and I thought, there's four of us and stuff. And the way she looks at him, like she's immediately enamored by how charming he is. And you like, you totally buy into it. You don't need to have had exposition or them to have had, a, you know, previous interactions. You're like, oh, of course you would trust him because he's the most charming giant in the world. But it's course, ridiculous. That comes from filming as well, doesn't it? Because of the, of way, course. He, the way he would look after him. We'll, we'll get to that, in fact, how he looked after him. Yeah, yeah. But like, like I said, it's, it, it just speaks to the film where everything is just running perfectly. That a guy who can hardly act, and, he, you know, in a traditional way, he's not a great actor, but on screen, he works perfectly. I love that. I do Absolutely love the perfectly. smile she gives him when he says i got i saw four horses i thought there would be four of us if we found the lady and there she is hi lady like hey lady <laughs> yeah yeah 
Yeah. And she just falls for him straight away in the same way you can imagine, Fe- um, Fe- um, sorry, Inigo did. Like, as soon as he saw him, he's just like, oh, I just love this guy. Like, I just want him, you know, he's obviously taking, like, even though he's a giant, he knows, of course, physically he can take care of himself, but he knows Fazzini is basically picking on him. So he's like, oh, no, you know, I'm going to be the one who takes care of him. And because they have that little scene where Fazzini's an asshole, but then he just jumps in, like, no big thing. He doesn't, like, go after Fazzini. He's just like, oh, don't worry, we'll do the little rhyming game because, you know, I know how smart you are and stuff like that. And one of the things, actually, like, Dread Pirate Roberts, like, Obviously, he has the fight with Inigo, and he's just like, oh, I, I could never destroy a, an artist such as yourself. So he knocks him out. He just puts, you know, um, Fezzik to sleep and, and hopes that he dreams of large women. But Fazzini dies. Oh, yeah, Fazzini is, <laughs> Fazzini is dead so they, they could because have, he's not he's not an honourable man. There could have been many ways to take off Fazzini, but he had it in his mind. Well, I mean, uh, of all three of them, the only person who's threatened Daisy's little buttercup's life, the only, uh, <laughs> yeah, the only one... Uh, one who threatened the life so much was Vecini. So Vecini had to go. Yeah, Vecini had to go because you can't, you can't be, you know. So that, that's why. Although they did let um, Princess uh, Humperdinck survive at the end. Prince Humperdinck. Prince, I say Princess Humperdinck. Sorry, yeah. Prince Humperdinck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's, he's fantastic. It was more for people to know that he was a coward. And I want, I want to get into Chris Sarandon because he, he's great in this. After seeing him in like Fright Night, oh, so good. I see him in this. Yeah, yeah. I do love him because obviously it was his plan then to have him uh, to have her kidnapped to be killed on the border to start mm-hmm. a, a war with Gilda mm-hmm. but I, I love how he's because he knows what's going on so he's pretending to, to be some sort of f- fantastic tracker you know what I mean like yeah. he's, some of his lines are amazing a great duel happened here and then the next one is uh, they were somebody fought a giant. Like, how the fuck do you know that without knowing it was an actual giant? How do you know that well, somebody fought a giant? I, I mean, so it's like, it's like unless I am wrong, and I am never wrong. <laughs> so, uh, oh, 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 one of my favorite, and it's again a low key line in the film. But the way when he, he has Buttercup there, it's like, oh, please consider me as an alternative to suicide. It's like, oh, what a charming line! What a charming line! But he's horrendous. Uh, what's his is um buddy's name? The guy does the torture and stuff. Oh, uh, what is his? Okay, his I, I know him. I know him. As, like his real name is Christopher Guest. But what the? Fuck? Yeah, I mean, he gives one of the harshest lines in the film, where where he thinks Inigo is basically he's basically killed Inigo when he throws the dagger and hits him in the chest. Yeah, he's like, wait, you've been chasing me for twenty years and you failed. I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And I'm just like, oh, God. Not like, oh, that's horrible. Like, the worst thing I've ever heard. Like, as he's dying, I was like, oh, my God. This guy's, done. you know, and just after he's obviously tortured Wesley almost to death. He, again, he doesn't get many lines, but he's low-key horrendous all the same. It's, it's his other one as well, when uh, Inigo Montoya keeps going in. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. And he's going, stop, stop saying that. that. Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He's such a deplorable character. Like, I'm happy to see him go. But when I went rewatched it, I was like, I am surprised that they let uh, Prince Humperdinck go. But hey, oh man, uh, uh, maybe Count maybe it was just because listen, if we have a sequel, we're going to need Prince Humperdinck back because he's fantastic in this film. Count Rugen, Christopher Guest was Count Rugen. Ah, uh, that's it. That's it. That's it. But it's weird because this film is so it's so timeless in so many respects, both in the way it's shot both in the fact that it's a classic fantasy film. You know, especially if you watch this film in HD, you're like, you know, would you necessarily pick this out as being a film that was made in the 80s? No, you know, it could have been made in the 50s almost. It could have been more recent. Everything about it is timeless, but what, you know, inexorably links it to the 80s is 
Fred Savage's bedroom. It's yeah. the, you know, you, you have all this stuff, fantasy, it's like, oh my God, it, this could, could have been made at any time. It's totally timeless. Oh no, that is the most 80s bedroom I have ever seen in my life. I mean, this sounds weird to say I love 80s kids' bedrooms, but there is something about them, the posters, the toys. And this, I, I we did it recently in Poltergeist, where obviously he had like a whole bunch of like cool movie posters yeah. and, um, and toys from the year. And of course, it's because we can relate to it because we were a similar age back then. But you look at this and it's like he's got all the He-Man toys lined up on the side. He's got um, the fridge poster, like the quintessential NFL player. I love all that stuff. It's fantastic. And of course, he's got Columbo reading the book to him. It's ridiculous. It's funny you should say that. I had a Facebook memory pop up the other day. Uh, I put it on a couple of years ago. A picture that was taken of me as a kid in my 80s bedroom. And it was <laughs> just taglined as typical 80s bedroom. I'm asleep under my Masters of the Universe wallpaper. With, awesome, awesome. With shorts and t-shirt pajamas that were buttoned mm-hmm. up and had the pocket. Do you remember? That? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That is classic. He's right there. My Mister T in the pocket. All right. Nice. My in the pocket. Yeah, I, I had him in my pocket. I was yeah. Right. I had my street hawk helmet on. Jesus Christ! This is eighties. This, this is putting Fred Savage to shame. Yeah. And, uh, like uh, obviously the eighties headboard. Oh. I can't remember the bedspread I had, but I think it was like the one of those 80s football bedspreads or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to think. No, I, like, I love that. I'll like, show you. It is quintessential 80s, honestly. Oh, I love all that. I, like, I had, like, the the Marvel, like, again, not based on the movies, obviously, because this is the 80s, but based on, like, the, the Secret Wars, like, the, the, the comic book. It yeah, was, yeah. like... A lot of the kind of imagery around that time was based on that comic run in particular. Uh, the the bedspread with like Captain America and stuff. And again, in this in his room, he's got a Captain America toy. He's even got like again, it's quite strange because when I think of America in particular, I just assume in like eighty seven he'd be playing a Nintendo, but he's actually playing a Commodore sixty four. He's playing yeah. a baseball game called Hardball, and it's like again, I had in nineteen eighty seven. I'm like, wait, I probably had a Commodore sixty four in nineteen eighty seven, but it did seem did seem strange that he was playing that instead of a NES. But yeah, there's like a cornucopia of like popular culture icons all over that room. The only thing I was surprised that wasn't there, and I'm not sure if it's a timing issue, but I feel like Alf should have made an appearance at some point. Like, where the hell was Alf? Judge Dredd was there, though. But, um, but yeah, like, every, as I said, it's just one of those films where, again, if you came in and you saw one scene individually, you might be like, well, this is a bit cheesy or this is a bit ridiculous. But as a film, it works absolutely perfectly. And it's when you go back and re-watch it. So I'm having a look at the picture of him with his Nighthawk mask on. Wait, with, yeah, that's very He-Man wallpaper in fairness. That's the one thing I forgot, the Etch-A-Sketch next to me as well. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ, man. That's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, mate, it's pasted 80s, though. Yeah, my football, my football bedspread, the floral headrest. Yeah, it's almost, it is, for those who can't see it, which, of course, is everyone but me, it is comically 80s. Comically you know what? I might 80s. have to put on that onto our website. Oh, you have to put it. Put on, like, if you guys get a chance, have a look on the yeah. Facebook group, because we'll put it on there That'll, for sure. It's the most eight, 80s thing we've ever seen. We'll pop down onto social media, just me as a kid in the most 80s bedroom you have ever seen. Just just doing 80s shit. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it's one of those films, like, those individual scenes, if you saw them on their own, they might not work if you'd never seen the film, but once you've seen the film all, all the way through, suddenly you could handpick any scene from this film and you'd be like, oh yeah, that's so charming. You, you think of like films which are cut into like YouTube clips nowadays. You can almost cut this entire film into totally watchable two-minute segments well, and they I mean, would all work. 
you've already proved that by the introduction because of the quote. quoting half the film yeah, yeah. Quote, like and every quote is pretty much memorable so it's the same thing mm-hmm. and they're all from memorable scenes the yeah, yeah, yeah one totally. that you didn't do which made me laugh every time I hear it. And it's, I mean, it, it's a trope because it always happens with the bad guy who turns on, mm-hmm. turns, as Americans say, turns on a dime. But it's uh, the head brute. Give us the key. I have no gate key. Fezzik tears his arms off. Oh, you mean this gate key? <laughs> this key. Yeah, I, I love how this, quick he does it. Like, it's so funny. There's so many. I mean, again, quite a R-rated quote later in the film when she's about to kill herself. And you're like, oh, no, you know, Princess Buttercup's about... And he's like, well, well there's a shortage of perfect breasts in the world. It would be a shame to damage yours. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, like, that, that line almost seems out of place. But oddly, again, in this film, kind of works. And, you know, you think of these moments of broad comedy. I mean, it comes to the fore in particular. The only... I'd say, actually, it's the only bit of the movie outside of the scenes in the bedroom, obviously, which are obviously in the eighties, the only film which makes it feel quote unquote um, modern are the scenes with Miracle Max. Like those scenes when they go in, obviously they're, you know, we're at the point in the film now. So they all think um, uh, Wesley or the Dread Pirate Roberts is dead. But as they say, they go there to get a miracle. They find out he's actually only mostly dead. So that's absolutely fine. And um, what's his name? Uh, Billy Crystal playing yeah. Miracle Max. He starts delivering lines and jokes which feel quite modern like they actually feel out of place with the rest of the film like a lot of the um, comedy earlier in the film it's either by playing with you know the gentle satire of the film like they're satiring the genre the fancy genre but never with any bite it's a very um excuse me it's a very positive satire if that makes any sense they're not really criticizing the genres They're, they're playing with them and and kind of turning up the tropes to 11 kind of thing but those scenes with miracle max i'm like this suddenly feels like almost like a saturday night live like sketch it's the only and don't get me wrong i like that scene but it's the only scene in the film where i'm like it's one which kind of places it in a certain time and place guaranteed like bill murray that he probably Billy Crystal probably didn't have a script. Billy Crystal probably yeah, had yeah. an idea of where his character needs to go, and then he just because the whole like MLT thing and everything was definitely him. Yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. And like you know, obviously this is a Rob Rayner film, and they had a pretty close relationship around then. But uh, and again, we we've mentioned this, I think when we did the um, Stand by Me podcast, but obviously that was quite a while ago now. But just as a reminder, like going back and watching this film. I still, I'm still the mindset that Rob Rayner might have had one of maybe the greatest director outside of Spielberg, perhaps when you're talking about the late 80s, 70s, going into the 80s. But Rob Rayner's run from 84 to 92, and they, like, just be clear, we're not skipping bad films. I'm not leaving any. This is every film he made, he directed. Sorry, so Spinal Tap 84, The Sure Thing 85, Stand by Me 86. The Princess Bride, 87, Harry Met Sally, 89, Misery in 1990, and A Few Good Men in 1992. That is an unbelievable run of just nonstop gold, which was derailed spectacularly by North in 1994. That was, you know, if you're going to end a run with a car crash, it might as well be an absolute pilot. And that really was. I completely forgot he did Misery. Because Misery... Yeah. Misery is such a left turn for the rest of his filmography. For the it really of, is. For the rest of the films he directed. And then it goes, oh, by the way, let's do Misery with the one of the worst, well, I say worst. I don't think you've seen many hobbling scenes. Do you know what I mean? So uh, it's, it, is a truly, it is a truly horrifying scene. And that is, 
one of the things you'll say about that run as well, it's like it's all over the map in terms of genre, tone, style. But my God, in terms of like success, fuck me. Unbelievable. I'm not sure North is as bad as you say it is. Uh, it is. It definitely is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's totally. Do you know what, right? I will go on record saying right now, I would rather watch North five times in a row than mm-hmm. any of the Bruce Willis films I am seeing advertised lately. Like, yeah, maybe maybe we could do a podcast one day about terrible modern day. I, I'm not going to watch all the films; just the trailers is fine. But yeah, yeah, yeah that. Like I've seen probably in the last four weeks about six new Bruce Willis films coming up in 2020. And, and just to be clear, for anybody who's suddenly confused as to like why the hell are they talking about modern day Bruce? Bruce Willis was in North because I, I I'm, let's go on record. I don't think many people have actually seen North, so I think well, why are they suddenly in this podcast doing a five minute aside on shitty Bruce Willis films? It's because North was a really shitty Bruce Willis film. But North is, I totally agree, uh, so much better than the last, what, 10 films he's made in the last two years? Real dog shit. More people have seen North than you can imagine. North is fantastic. Oh, well, sell down, sell down. See, you, you, you're comparing them to the modern day Bruce Willis stuff, which is basically, I mean, we're talking Steven Seagal stuff. That's what we're talking about. It's terrible. It's the old school straight to DVD nonsense, poorly directed, poorly acted. You can see he's phoning it in. Don't watch these films. You don't need to just watch. I would go just watch the last five trailers. And you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Rough stuff, rough stuff. Um, it seems an odd place to end talking about the movie, you know, about yeah, Bruce Willis's terrible, of terrible modern input. I've got a couple All right, of cool. I want to bring Thank up. God. Yeah, you need to save the day here. Yeah. So there are a few things I wanted to mention. As as you're going through the film, obviously, there's just some things you you kind of pull out, which which make me laugh. Like, Andre the Giant invented the Vulcan nerve pinch, I'm sure. Like, if this is set way before Star Trek, <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess theoretically it's set before Star Trek, yes. Like, I, I, oh my God, when he just pinched the side of that guy's uh, neck, oh no, Daisy, I'm sorry, keep saying mm-hmm. fucking Daisy, Buttercup, and just sent mm-hmm. it to sleep. It is basically the Vulcan nerve pinch there, but Andre the Giant's hands... So big. You know what I mean? Yeah, so they're cutting off circulation to everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure if there's any, you know, the thing is with a, a Vulcan um, neck, Grip, what are they called? Vulcan death nerve grips, pinch. neck grips, nerve, nerve pinch. pinch. Jesus Christ, I got that completely wrong. Nerve pinch. You're assuming that there's a certain level of skill. Like it's all about finding the perfect place, maybe even the perfect timing to put them to sleep. This is just a giant man squeezing a part of your body until you go to sleep. It's just like, yeah, that is it. He's just that big. I don't think there's any delicacy to what he's doing. He's just too big. It's like when he says, he hits the guy on the head. He's like, oh, you know, I just hit him too hard. He's probably dead now. I apologize. Vicini, played by Wallace Shawn. Mm-hmm. I always knew I knew his voice. And as you go along, you see his face all the time and everything. But he was uh, yeah. Rex from all the Toy Stories. That- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was oddly enough one of those things I found out when I was doing the research for this film. I was like, what else has he been? Because that voice is so distinct. And when it was Rex, I was like, of course he was Rex. I was like, how didn't I hear that before? It seemed, it's so obvious when you see the two names attached. But I, it never, you know, I've seen four Toy Story movies and it never clicked for me either. It's insane. Absolutely insane. So, but the... With everything as well that should take you out of the film, the one thing that takes me out, and I think that will never happen, is the mm-hmm. length of time it takes Bassini to cut that massive fucking rope with that yeah, yeah. dagger. Like, that's a letter opener that I thought dude's got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. through that like a knife through butter. <laughs> yeah, there's that. And how long... Like, let's be clear... 
um, when they're kind of like charging the gates and uh, Andre the Giant is pretending to be the Dread Pirate Roberts and he's on the bar- wheelbarrow and stuff like that, he's on fire for a long time. Yeah. He's on fire for a little bit too long. I'm just like, dude, dude, shouldn't you be worried at this point? You're all on fire. You're not covered in any kind of fire retardant kind of like chemicals here. This is just a giant cloth on fire with you guys in it. I'm pretty sure you would have all burnt alive in it. But got, I'll allow it. I'll allow it for the sake of the movie. I wonder if they got advice from the guy that did Freddy from A Nightmare on Elm Street last... <laughs> yeah, yeah, where he's just like, I'm just going to stay on fire. Where it's just like, well, you've got to keep the whole thing. It's like, dude, this is supposed to be like a five-second clip, but, you know, the dude stayed on fire for a minute, so we're going to have to put the whole minute in, you know? It's like, fair I mean, enough. Nightmare on Elm Street was 87 as well, wasn't it? So they could have... Yeah, had, yeah. Had maybe, it's, maybe it was just the vintage year for people being on fire. And maybe it is a similar situation where the guy in the suit, where it's just like... Dude, he's been on fire for a minute and he's he's not panicking. He's not backing out. So we've got to put the whole minute in the film. It seems only fair. If it, I think it's one of those rules. Like if you're on fire, they need to put the whole thing in the movie. As long as you're on fire, that's going on screen. End of story. Well, that was whether certainly how they played it in 1987 anyway. Whether or not you end up with third degree burns or you're not coming back from this, if you're on fire, we're going to keep her in the film. We'll just... Yeah, we're still... We'll keep rolling. Keep rolling. He's still on fire. Just keep it up. You go to the edit room. It's like, dude, there's three minutes of this guy being on fire. Yeah, I know. But he was on fire the whole time. It all goes in. We'll have to cut two characters and a whole side story. But we're keeping the dude on fire in for the full three minutes. That's all there is to it. Did this guy survive? No, he's still on fire. Wait, this was filmed four weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, he's still on fire. He's yeah, yeah, we still have the camera rolling. We've just made three sequels. Jesus the Christ. only fire that's been longer than him is the Springfield Tire Fire. Yeah, that's probably the only one. That is the only one. It does go on for far too, far too long. But yeah, usually um, this is where we move on to facts. But instead of that, what could do? The fire went on. Oh, the, him being on fire went on for far too long. Almost as long as this fucking bit we've done about things being on fire. I know, I know. We, we've really stretched this out. But yeah, usually at the end of like this section, you know, where we just talk about the film, usually we go straight into facts. Yeah. But just as like a way to sum up the movie, we're going to do a very quick fire love and hate section. So it's literally just three things we love and three things we hate about the film. So I'm just going to read them out real quick. Basically, in terms of what I love, pointers on how to live. So I will never get involved in a land war in Asia. I mean, it is one of the classic funders. I will never do that. Two, Andre the Giant being inexplicably brilliant. He really shouldn't be, but he's fantastic in this film. And I think we've already mentioned it, boys' bedrooms from the 80s, which if you cut that out as a clip on its own, is going to make me sound very dodgy indeed. <laughs> um, do you want to do line. your love? Because this is the first time we've done this. Do we do like what I love, then what you love, yeah, and then yeah, what yeah. I hate? Yeah, okay, yeah. so go let's, for it. Let's, let's have a love fest and a hate fest. Yeah, 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 yeah. love fest. That that quote you just said about boys' bedrooms in the 80s, I am so using that as the tagline for this next... Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Liam loves boys' bedrooms from the 80s. Fantastic. <laughs> right, so sword fight. Yeah, brilliant. The chemistry between Andre the Giant and anybody else. Fantastic. And that's, randomly, that's so much more eloquently put than my, my own point, but hey And randomly, Chris Sarandon as Humperdinck his smarminess has done so well. I know we don't have to explain, like this is not for us to explain everything. We're just going to quick fire what we said. Mm-hmm. I just love Chris Sarandon in this film. After seeing him yeah, in Friday, everyone to this, he's great in this. He is really He good. is brilliant. He's uh, brilliant. All right, so I, well, yeah, so hate, even though it might be a strong word. It's tricky. Yeah. It's tricky in this one. But I was like, I hate, what do I hate about this film? Well, I hate the idea of being mostly dead. That doesn't sound very fun at all. Um, because of this film, I can't take uh, wedding seriously anymore. I literally went to a wedding 
And the, the fucking priest kept saying marriage. And all I heard was marriage, marriage. And I started laughing. And the problem so I, I was like leaning over to Beth and I was like, marriage, right? Marriage. And she's like, I was like, you haven't seen Princess Bride, have you? So like, for fuck's sake, it's just me thinking about the goddamn the end of this film. So yeah, that was a pain in the ass. And, and I guess rodents of unusual size. Nobody likes rodents of unusual size. And I, I, I'm cheating a little bit here, but just what it's in my head. The um the main themes of this film is terrible. Storybook Love by Mark Knopfler and Willie Deville is an absolute stinker. We'll get to that obviously in soundtrack, but yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that either. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Did you? When you're going to say soundtrack, I was going to come up with, I might not know, I might edit this part out. But I was going to say, I actually haven't heard the end credit song until this week when I watched this film. And I was like, I really like this. Oh, dude, it's a, it, it felt like a South Park song. It literally felt like a South Park song. I, like, they, they're clearly taking it very seriously, but it sounds like a send-up. It's ridiculous. I really didn't like it. I really didn't like it. Sorry, sorry. but So... My three things I hate, and I'm kind of cheating on this one because I couldn't think of a lot I hated on this one. Uh, so, Vecini's face, Vecini's voice, and Vecini alone. The guy did my, my sweetie didn't do. Like his voice, what? when he started yelling and shouting, I just wanted to scratch mm. my ears out. Well, that's a great thing. He's like the only, well, they kill two people in this film and they are just the worst, but... Yeah, Fasini is without question. He's like the low-key villain of the film. And I can't believe we've gone all the way through this podcast and not said there's one very obvious word which we haven't said. Well, we- his entire bloody acting, his entire performance is inconceivable. <laughs> it certainly is. We had to say inconceivable at some point. Inconceivable. This word you were saying, I don't think it means what you think it means. Um, you yeah, so caught me out on that in a previous episode, didn't you? We did it with uh, Dave. What was the episode? Uh, to- oh, well, you, you literally kept saying it. It was like, yeah, I I did, it, like, no, yeah. it wasn't inconceivable, but it wasn't, however you were saying it, it wasn't the right way. Um, yeah, so um, next up, I guess, is facts. This is this is your round, dude. So go hit me with the facts. Cool. So... Sorry, I, I was about to say, shouldn't I do what I hated? But I just said, yeah, I pretty much hate all of the scene. So yeah, yeah. When asked what his favourite thing about making this film was, Andre the Giant replied without skipping a beat, nobody looks at me. He felt treated as an equal without people staring at him because of his brand size. That's nice. During the filming of some scenes, the weather became markedly cold for Robin Wright. Andre the Giant helped her by placing one of his hands over her head. His hands were so large that one would entirely cover the top of her head, keeping her warm. So literally just, do you know what? Let's just put my hand on my head and just, yeah. Really I love the fact that we're just, the whole facts section is just going to be how lovely Andre the Giant was. It's great. Well, it's pretty much. Like, what's the other one? It's one I, I hadn't got written down, but I remember it. There was a scene where Andre the Giant let out a 16-second fart. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. That pretty much just stopped everyone. And Rob Reiner just turned around to him and said, are you okay? And he went, I am now, boss. <laughs> the reason I said fantastic. That one, the reason I said that one, obviously, because it's funny about uh, a 16 second fart. Because if you think about it, you say 16 seconds and it doesn't sound that long. But as a fart, yeah, but you count down one, two, yeah. three, four, five, six, seven, still farting, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, still farting, still going, 16. So, like, that whole time, just one long fart? I mean, the first question is like, oh, my God, 
he is aggressively shit himself. And if Andre to try and shit himself, it's like, oh my God, this is going to be an event. I assume he has somebody who deals with these things. I don't know. He's very famous and very rich. Crazy. I can't believe I counted the whole 60 seconds. I do apologize. Jesus Christ. When Count Ruben hits Wesley over the head, Carrie always, you got me saying it now. We're going to have to find out how to say his name properly. Carrie always told Christopher Guest to go ahead and hit him for real. Guest hit him hard enough to shut down production for a day while Elwes went to the hospital. Fantastic. <laughs> he hit him no, with- him, him, of course. It's not him telling, no, you can hit me. It's the direct saying, no, 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 hit him. Hit him harder. He hit him with the butt of the sword as well, didn't he? So yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He smacked this thing across the back of his head. Jesus Christ. Director Rob Reiner left the set during Billy Crystal scenes because he would laugh so hard that he would feel nauseated. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin claims that the, the only injury he sustained during the entire filming of the movie was bruised ribs due to sit, uh, stifling his laughter in his scenes with Billy Crystal. His attempt at holding back his laughter is obvious from his facial expression during his line, this is noble, sir. So apparently everyone was just going nuts at Billy Crystal because he just... Well, yeah, he's really let, let loose in that scene. It is one of those... Classic. Obviously, he's got all the makeup on, but they're just like, listen, like you said, you wouldn't be that surprised if uh, the majority wasn't scripted and it's just off the cuff. It's just like, all right, Billy, here's the, the general idea. You're this character. He's got to be brought to life. Go. Just do what the fuck you want and just off to the races. <laughs> so according to author William Goldman, when he was first trying to get the movie made in the 70s, a then unknown Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to play Fezzik. And he was strongly yeah. being considered because Goldman could never get his first choice, Andre the Giant, to read for the role. By the time the movie was made, about 12 years later, Schwarzenegger was such a big star they could not afford him. Andre was cast after all, and two big men had gone on to become friends. Well, it's 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 easy to forget on to not realize, I guess, looking back now, is just how famous Andre the Giant was. Yeah. Like and the thing is. It, it's almost weird for us because you see it and he's so nice in this. And I'm not sure if it's the same. I assume it's the same for you. When I grew up, Andre the Giant was always a heel. Like, you know, when I think of Andre the Giant, I think of, in particular, I think of WrestleMania 3 and I think of WrestleMania, uh, sorry, SummerSlam 88. Because SummerSlam 88 was the first VHS uh, wrestling I ever rented. And it was Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan as the superpowers versus Ted DiBiase and um, Andre the Giant. And at that point, he was already having health problems. But of course, you know, he was he was very much a heel. And for the rest of his career in the WWF, that's what he was. But for years in the 70s, going into the 80s, he was always the good guy. And it was before WWF where all the wrestling was regional. And all these companies, they used to rent out, essentially, uh, Andre the Giant. And he used to show up in these towns. And of course, this is, you've got to remember, this is before, you know, wrestling was on TV on a regular basis. It was all regional stuff. And before the internet. So all they would hear is like Andre the Giant is an actual giant and he's coming to town. And people would go insane. They're like, oh my God, it's Andre that I have to see this actual giant. And of course, they'd go and see him wrestle in these like regional wrestling competitions or um, divisions, whatever you want to call them. And fucking Andre the Giant shows up and he's an actual giant. And I think he had some ridiculous record where he was unbeaten for like 10 years. Because, of course, that was his shtick. He would just show up and just beat whoever the local kind of wrestler was, you know. And when I say local, we are talking state level. But that was just how wrestling used to be set up in the 70s and early 80s. He was never off off his feet until Hogan power slammed him, was he? Uh, Yeah, body slammed him in uh, WrestleMania 3. So that was like a massive deal. But yeah, it was, as I said, it was like he was always the good guy. But it was when we were growing up, we always thought of, oh, he's the heel. He's the bad guy, Andre the Giant. 
And it was com- in complete contrast to in this film where he's just like the nicest fucking guy in the world. It's unbelievable. He's one of the most charming screen presence I've ever seen. Despite the fact he can't act and you don't know what the hell he's saying half the time. Crazy. So we've gone on to Andre the Giant quite a lot. So Andre the Giant called almost everybody <laughs> on set because uh, be they directors, producers, co-stars or crew, boss. A technique he employed to defer people he liked and go some way towards counteracting the way he would tower over them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you've got some guy, as we've already said, who is just, oh my God, he's like three of you standing over you. But he's called yeah, yeah, yeah. boss. Do you know what I mean? It kind of like, yeah, yeah. it humanizes him at that point. And he humanizes yeah, yeah. the situation, yeah. He, he's basically saying, it's like, well, you're in charge. You just treat me like you would anyone else. And, uh, and as you said, like, you know, earlier, that whole idea, like he's on set and he's like, nobody's kind of like freaking out. No one's like, oh, I've got to get a photo with him and stuff. It's just like, he's just a number. He's just another member of the cast. That's it. So yeah, yeah, totally charming. This one's quite good. So the giant rodents were created with diminutive actors inside rat suits. On the day mm-hmm. Wesley was supposed to wrestle them, was supposed to wrestle one of them. The main actor, Danny Blackner, he was nowhere to be found. Finally, Blackner arrived on set with a long story about being pulled over for speeding the night prior on his way home from the bar, and subsequently being put in jail for a few hours for drinking. After the police officer didn't believe his story about having to work as an actor stuntman playing a rat. Can you imagine? Oh, that's a shame, isn't it? You pull over, you pull over like a diminutive actor, and he mm-hmm. tells you, "Oh, but I gotta be in work tomorrow because I'm uh, I'm a stuntman rat on a production." <laughs> yeah, a rat yeah. standard. And around this time, it was you know again that whole thing about physical effects versus special effects. Like you see, like they have these monsters film, and a, a film I keep bringing up was. Um, the Predator, like one of the most disappointing films I've seen in recent times. And they had those like Predator dogs, but they were all CG and it didn't have any impact. Whereas like you see this and because that's got that tangible nature, the rodents of unusual size are pretty freaky. And especially um, the dogs in Willow, which we yeah. did uh, last week, like they are so effective as just, it's just dogs dressed up as giant dog rat things. But because again, it has that physical impact because you can see unequivocally that they're real, even if they're something real in costume, or whatever. I just think it works so much better and just makes them so much more kind of gross, basically, yeah. for lack of a better term. Right. So only a couple more from me then. In order to create the greatest sword fight in modern times, Carrie Alwes and Mandy Patinkin trained for months with Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson, who between them had been in the Olympics, worked on Bond, Lord of the Rings, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars films, and coached Errol, Flynn and Burt Lancaster. Every spare moment on set was spent practicing. Eventually, when they showed Rob Reiner the sword fight for the movie, he was underwhelmed and requested that it be at least three minutes long rather than the current one minute. They added steps to the set, watched more swashbuckling movies for inspiration, re-choreographed the scene, and ended up with a three-minute and ten-second fight, which took the better part of a week to film from all angles. That's a long one. It is It is a long one, but again, you, you think it almost goes under the radar just how good the sword fight is because the dialogue is so good, and it's just suddenly you realise it works on both sides. It's almost like if you muted that scene, you'd be like, this is an amazingly choreographed old-fashioned swashbuckling sword fight. And as we mentioned, it is fantastically choreographed. But you almost don't notice the fact that it's so brilliant because you, you, you're more tuned into the... Because the dialogue in that scene is so good. So it's it's happening. And it was only, again, watching maybe the movie with a more critical eye, I was like, God damn, this choreography is unbelievable. And one of the great things, it, it, you know, you think about a modern-day equivalent is like um, Tom Cruise. When you see Tom Cruise doing his stunts, you suddenly notice when you see a film you and you have those cutaways, 
What's that? Sorry. You wish they'd fail. Which, no, no, not that. But you know, like if you suddenly watch Bond or something like that, and you you start noticing the cuts because you're like, well, that bit has to be a stuntman, yeah. or they go to CG because, of course, Daniel Craig's not doing that. And then you suddenly watch Mission Impossible, and you're like, you see it up front and person. It's like this is Tom Cruise doing that. It's the same in this. The camera's on them the whole time. There's always those wide shots. You can see them both in yeah. focus, and like. This isn't stuntmen doing these things. The, the actors have learned the moves and they're going through the motions and they have to be there because they're delivering dialogue throughout the whole thing. And it makes for what might be the best scene in one of the best movies. It's it's unbelievable. The names that... Sorry, a bit of a rant. <laughs> okay. uh, I just wanted to say, you've gone on about all, all that. Until Tom Cruise breaks his ankle and has to shut production down instead of just using a, a proper stuntman. But, oh, uh, forget but, that. You can't uh, have it. Can't have it. Not Tom Cruise got to do his own shit. Oh, I love Tom Cruise. You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> wrong. You, you hate Tom Cruise and you love North. History's on my side, dude. Also, History's on my side. Karate Kid sucks. Right, the names <laughs> that Inigo and Wesley oh, refer to in the chatty duel sequence are all actual fencing terms. Do you like the fact they just carried on it so you couldn't see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the right way to go, I think. <laughs> Sequences are all actual fencing terms named after their 14th and 15th century proponents. Benetti's defense refers to refraining from attacking on uneven terrain. Capoferra refers to a linear attack, the best for uneven terrain. Thibault refers to angular defences, attacks, and Agrippa refers to natural short sword movements, which cancel out angular defences and attacks. And I can never say Agrippa without thinking of it. Unless the... I'm doing a Spanish accent. Of course. Unless your opponent studies as Agrippa, oh, which I have. <laughs> See, now I'm going to have the problem where every time I say hello to anyone, I do it in a Spanish accent. I'll just mean so, hello. And they'll be like, is he Spanish? No, he's definitely not Spanish. He's yeah. just an asshole. Is he Spanish or is he just doing Inigo Montoya? Yeah, I think he's just doing Inigo Montoya. Is he going to do the whole quote? Oh, Jesus Christ, he's doing the quote. I'm just going to leave. Yes, probably for the best. <laughs> I can't leave. We're recording a podcast. Okay. <laughs> Fair <on>. enough. <laughs> Despite his, this is my last one. Despite his character, physics, almost superhuman strength, Andre the Giant's back problems at the time prevented him from actually lifting anything heavy. Robin Wright had to be attached to wires in the scene where Buttercup jumps from the castle window into Fezzik's arms because he couldn't support her himself. Now, let me just say this, right? She had to be attached to wires to jump from a a window into his arms. Even if he's strong enough to catch her, attach Mm. her to wires. Don't yeah, yeah, yeah. the fucking window hoping that he will no no I, I suspect they would have still had her attached to wires but yeah I, I take their point like he should be able to take her weight you know but it, it just speaks to is how you know this was already towards the end of his wrestling career and not actually a million years away from when he actually passed away yeah and you could see it even in the wrestling rings back then it was like he would come in and his, obviously he was never bounding around the ring like a lunatic but even from when we started watching it, certainly from the late 80s going into the 90s, his range of movement was so limited. And he was very much an impact guy. He'd walk over the top, he'd hit someone on the back, and he'd be out of there kind of thing. But uh, yeah, you, you know, he was he was already toiling quite a bit by the by the late you 80s. That. Just, you don't need wires. Andre's going to catch you. Now, go. Like, go, go, go. Yeah. Aim, for, aim for the giant. Aim for the giant. Okay, uh, fair enough. Off you go, Princess care. Buttercup. Please, just attach her to wires anyway. If he's strong enough to catch her, just, just make sure she's... Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. I would say, I know it's the 80s, and as we've said a million times, we're talking about like cocaine being you know in abundant use. But I would say, if you're throwing anybody out of a window two stories or more up, yeah, 
Get some wires on them, for heaven's sake. Jesus Christ. You take these facts with a grain of salt, like people wrote. But just reading that then, and it's saying he had back problems, so she had to be attached to wires. And you think, fucking attach her to wires anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think we are kind of missing the point. It's more just the fact that he literally, I don't think he could literally hold her in his arms. That was the problem. His back was so bad that, you know, jokes aside in terms of throwing her out of a window and stuff, is that when she did land in his arms. I think the whole point was like, that he literally couldn't support her weight yeah. in his arms, which seems inconceivable. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> for someone of that size and of that, you know, apparent strength, but his back was in such a state that he literally couldn't carry Robin Wright, who couldn't have weighed much more than a few pounds in 1987. But yeah, it's uh, it, it was what it was, I suppose. Speaking of inconceivable, pulling three people up a, bill, up a rope without your legs... Yeah, but it's Andre the Giant. It's Andre yeah, the Giant. I'm willing to find it. Giant. But my God, that, as the camera moves up, that guy is straight. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's straight arming. He's just going for it. Yeah. And, oh. and I love the fact that after not saying inconceivable for like an hour, we've said it like 17 times since. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Um, so that's it for facts. Oh, sorry. I was just picturing that, that that rope scene. That is my that is me for facts. But I was picturing that rope scene then. And I said Vassini's face did my head in. Can you imagine Andre the Giant? Because he is strapped. To his face. Oh, like face to face. Yeah, they really are in each other's grill in that scene. <laughs> kind of being fun. So kind of being fun. That would have angered the fuck out of me. Sorry, yeah, I'm done Probably. with facts. I'm good. Oh, no, that's fine. Facts. Um, legacy is a bit of a weird one with this film because yeah. when I think of the legacy of this film, obviously there haven't been any sequels and I can't even fathom a remake. I mean, literally, other than there were some lines with Prince Humperdinck where I, I, I really was picturing Matt Berry you know, with his voice. Yeah. Like, I can imagine Matt Berry delivering some of those um, lines, like, you know, uh, unless I am wrong and I'm never, I, like, I could just, I could hear Matt Berry delivering those lines. Especially but outside as, of that. Especially as Matt Berry is Toast from Toast of Love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, really swinging for the fences. Yeah. But I was like, realistically, I was like, I don't want a sequel. I don't want a remake. And the only thing I can think in terms of, like, something close to this is probably Shrek. That that is like tonally the closest thing to this, but that film goes for more like overt jokes, and and the satire is a little bit more on the nose than this is. As I said, this is never making fun of the genre; it's just kind of turning it up to eleven. It's still the satire for sure, but it's not in the same way as uh, as Shrek. But again, in terms of something that takes the fantasy genre and takes it in a different direction, the only thing I could really think of in terms of something that was almost certainly inspired by uh, the Princess Bride is Shrek. So I'm not sure if you've got anything else to go with there, but uh, in terms of legacy, the only other major legacy is just its place as like one of the ultimate cult movies, a film which fundamentally did fine. I mean, you know, usually when you think of cult movies, you think of films which really didn't do well or they were a tiny budget. This is by a famous director with stars, a decent budget, which did decent numbers at the box office. But I think the fact that it's gone on to become so beloved has made it a cult movie. You know, it's it's lived on way beyond its, you know, sell-by date to become something quite special to a lot of people, you know? So for me, in regards to legacy, you, you obviously had in 2020 the Princess Bride read-through that they did. They all got together and did the yeah, yeah, yeah. reunion. So where a bunch of a bunch of them got together and re-read. Uh, Eric Idle was the impressive clergyman on that one. Whoopi Goldberg came as the ancient boor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Reiner as the grandfather. Josh Gad as Fezzik. You know, and a mm-hmm. bunch of people, and who uh, I think Carrie Alwes was in there as well, and uh, maybe Robin Wright 
came back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the only other thing then is the framing sequence was used for Deadpool 2 when they did it oh, yeah. kid-friendly. Like Deadpool, mm-hmm. Deadpool was the uh, the grandfather and uh, he yeah, yeah, yeah. Fred Savage and Red. So because they made uh, Once Upon a Deadpool, didn't they? Where they took Deadpool two and made it kid friendly for yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. Watch yeah. I totally so, forgot about that. So in regards to legacy, that that's it for for that kind of yeah. And I guess is it the only film which has such a like almost kind of it's like a literary inception. So the book. It's a book that was subsequently the book in the movie based on the book that was in the book. I mean, yeah. is that right? It's it's absolutely insane. It's so inceptiony, and there's nothing else like it because he's reading the book, which is based on a real book. But that person is reading the book in the book based on the. Fil- oh my god, I feel like I'm I'm going cockeyed just trying to think about it. I literally like I've read that because I, I was writing that down as I was watching the film, and as Bethan was literally explaining it to me. And as I'm reading it back, I'm like, I'm not sure if that's right at all. But it's, you get what I mean. It's so self-aware that it's a book. It's, like, it's so. Uh, sorry. I keep sorry. I keep losing you. I think we're back. No, not back. No, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's so yeah, yeah, self-aware as a book. Like it's aware it's a book inside a book, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, unless Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to break you out of uh, of this, I'm not too sure about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely bananas. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, I mean, I mean, that's pretty much it for legacy. So, um, in terms of um, soundtrack. I mean, we've already mentioned this. I mean, the score is on the nose, a borderline cheesy, but like everything else in this film, it's in it inexplicably works. It's absolutely bizarre. The only thing which doesn't work for me, but obviously did for you, is Storybook Love by Mark Knopfler and Willie DeVille. It. So much so oh, I, I downloaded it. it to my phone. <laughs> I did you really? Yes. Well, this is the complete opposite of next week's conversation because next week, we're doing, um, and spoiler, we've already said what we're doing next week, as we mentioned on the last podcast, we're doing The Running Man. And to say that the main thing to that has been in my head and on my playlist all week would be an understatement. No, 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 this is the complete opposite. This did not work for me. As I said, when I was listening to it, I was like, this feels like something South Park would do. It just felt so cheesy, but not in a fun way. I don't know. I really, I really didn't like it. To me, really it, it like felt it. like old school Peter Gabriel slow songs, like Salisbury, yeah. things like that. And I kind of enjoyed oh. it. I really did. I, I I I don't know for one reason or another. You know, you think of the films. You you know, obviously I mentioned the Running Man, which we do next week. But it's like the Karate Kid, or um, the one that really stood out for me in terms of like a hidden classic was um, uh, Monster Squad, yeah. which had that great theme tune, like right in the middle of the film when they were do, you know getting all the kids together and stuff. But this this one, it's almost like they know it because the end credits start, and it doesn't start with this. It actually starts with again the kind of quite fantastical, old-fashioned score, and then sneaks this in afterwards. That's it's almost like yeah. they knew it was shit. <laughs> I, I wondered then if that was part of the song. When I downloaded it, it wasn't, but I kept the song. Because it starts off with that, and then, as you say, it just goes straight. There's no cut. It just goes straight no. into the song. So you think that's oh, the intro. Yeah, no, it, it's it's bad stuff. It's bad stuff. So let's move on from soundtrack to uh, video games. It's, it's a bit of a strange one because there's only ever been... I mean... There was a Princess Bride 2008 uh, video game, and it was a mini game collection. And they actually did have much of the original cast, but I never played it. I think it was largely for phone and Macs and stuff. But I, I had a look at the reviews; it was supposed to be supposed to be terrible. So realistically, we're talking more about like if you were going to make a video game based on the Princess Bride, you know, what would you go for? And in terms of 
when I think of this film, the most important thing to me is getting the dialogue right. And I don't, when we say like making a video game based on this film, we're not necessarily saying it has to be a beat for beat remake. It could be a direct sequel. You could be getting the cast back. But I immediately, what I thought of was Tim Schafer and Double Fine. And I'm thinking like, if you could get somewhere between the kind of like the gameplay of uh, Psychonauts, like the platforming of Psychonauts and the kind of action gameplay of Brutal Legends, but retain that really strong writing and that self-awareness. I'm like, I feel like that would be the perfect balance. And I'm not exactly sure what kind of game it would be other than there might be some platforming and some action, but rather than think, oh, there's a template for a game. I'm just like, no, I want Tim Schafer and Double Fine to make it. It just feels like they would be the perfect place to make a Princess Bride sequel, say, for instance. If, of course, if they could get some of, like, like you said, with the cast reading, if they could get some of the original cast back, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I'm lost with this. I am completely lost. The only <laughs> thing I can think of, especially when you turned around to me uh, just now, you turned around to me when you face to face to me and said, "Yeah, yeah, like the whole podcast." I've just been looking at the wall. I won't look at any bad mouth karate kid again. Fuck this guy, Jesus Christ! <laughs> when you said about, and he likes North, son of a bitch. I will not look you in the eyes I, anymore. I will caveat. I was taking the piss. North sucks, and I said that on recorded. So, <laughs> but karate kid is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say so the, you want about the narrative side and things like that and mm-hmm. the only thing I can think of is make it like the Oregon Trail where it's all text-based <laughs> so you're going for like an old BBC computer text-based adventure <laughs> set in the Princess Bride universe well the award for most left field fucking choice of all time goes to you sir unbelievable so, as you're travelling to the fire swamp was it Wesley died of dysentery or whatever they died? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not quite as exciting. It's kind of like, um, I'm not sure if you ever played it, but I had a premier manager on the Mega Drive in like 1992. And of course, it just didn't have the, you know, you think of like, um, what is it? Um, it's called Football Manager now, but it's called Premier. Was it Premier Manager? Whatever the hell it was. Was it Championship Manager? Championship Manager. That's what it used to be called. But of course, you know, this is on the Mega Drive, 16-bit computer. So it was so much more simple. But you, you, I'd be playing with Liverpool back in the early 90s. And then at the end of the second season, they'd be like, John Barnes has retired to go and work on a farm. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Why is John Barnes retired to go work on a farm? Is he not going to work in the boot, you know, at least in the back room, something? No, no, he's too busy on his farm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but no, I quite like the idea of Wesley getting dysentery on the way to the fire swamp. Yeah. Okay, well, I think you win this week, sir. Let's go with the Oregon Trail version. Oh, my um, God. So, yeah, that, that's it for um, the movie. I mean, as usual, at this point, it's review. Would you encourage others to watch it? I mean, for me, in case it's not perfectly obvious already, it's a five-star film. And, yes, I would shout it from the rooftops because I honestly think this is a film potentially for everyone. It's just so charming, so likable. And as I said earlier well i say i'm not saying it's the best film of all time but it is in that list of perfect films in terms of just totally achieving what i set out to do all these individual parts they shouldn't work but everything does the casting work the writing works the setting works the dodgy tone works everything works except for the main theme which is dog shit but whatever but other than that horrendous main theme this is a borderline perfect movie and of course i think everyone should go watch it and i think it's one of these films that it'll just keep picking up more and more fans because outside of the 80s at bedroom scene, which most people are like, hey, look, it's Fred Savage and Columbo. That's nice. I think everyone's just like, it's just timeless. It'll, you know, it's going to look, this. it's going to feel the same in 20 years as it does now. So yeah, absolutely. 
Encourage everyone to go see it. Perfect five star film. Including the fantastic song at the end. And uh, I, I will caveat that saying, all right, maybe not fantastic. I liked it. I liked it. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is, it is. I, 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 I smiled watching this film. I enjoyed watching it. I will watch it again. It's a it's a five star film for me as well, and I would encourage others to watch it. And it's one of those yeah. it's one of those nice ones where you're not encouraging people who are fans of this genre you, because it, what genre? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it's just, a bit of everything. It's just yeah, watch this film. It is a good film. Well, it's like like I said, it was like if I was talking like my friends, one of my friends is up uh, from Manchester, and he's brought his his, his whole family. Say like you know his wife's there, his kids are there, and it's one of those films. I'm like yeah, all watch it. It's like you watch it, your wife watch it, get your kids to watch it. And when you get at home, get your dad to watch it. Shout out to my friend's dad, one, because he actually listens to the podcast as well. But, you know, if he hasn't seen it, you watch it. Granddad watch it. Grandkids watch it. And it just works for everyone. And as I said, it, that magic trick that it pulls off where it's not just like, oh, wait, the, the bit for the adults is coming now. The whole film is for the adults and the whole film is for the kids. And I don't know what kind of alchemy they use to pull that off because I don't think any other film pulls it off as successfully as uh, The Princess Bride. So, yeah, absolute masterpiece for sure. Yep. So that's it. That's it, I suppose. So the only thing left is... No, no, this your... is... Oh, sorry. I... We, oh, sorry know... mate. we already know what's going on for next for next week. Yeah, we already know what's coming next week. In case you didn't listen last week, it's The Running Man. So yeah, we're doing The Running Man next <laughs> but, uh, week. That's fine. I am throwing in a little section I like to call Vindication because we had a message <laughs> of a listener, right? Okay. Dan. This is coming to surprise. I don't like the sound of this. I don't like the look on his face, and I don't like the tone he's taking. For some reason, I think this is going to fly. This is going to. It's going to be bad for me for sure. So, one of our listeners, Dan, who's, who always messages and likes to listen and throw things in now and then, has come up with a garbage pail game kit game by Naughty Dog is the game I never knew I wanted. Oh, for God's sake, for God's sake. Naughty, Naughty Dog making a garbage pail kids video game, yeah? yeah this is, it's a game yeah, that, that just sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard. It's Jesus Christ. It's vindication. It's not vindication at all. We're, we're, we're not doing a garbage pail kids podcast. Forget about it. I feel, I feel like, I love the fact no, that I'm arguing about this. I feel like, right, we should have at least three vetoes, maybe a year. We'll say three vetoes a year where you're just like, one of us says, oh, we should do that. And the other one can say, go fuck yourself. And I would like to use one of those vetoes to say, go fuck yourself when it comes to Garbage Pail Kids. I have no, there's no joy in rewatching that. I'm Just leave it where it is. That's burning in hell, presumably. That's absolutely fine. And I'm glad you said three vetoes because I will use my three vetoes next year on shit. And then when you can't use any more vetoes, I'm bringing in the <laughs> You're just gonna keep. You're gonna just keep naming terrible films. And then six months from now, I forgot about the garbage pail kids, and you've snuck it back into the 2022 run. Son of a bitch! You're very sneaky. But honestly, garbage pail kids aside, thank you very much for listening. As always, I do hope you'll join us next week for uh, the Running Man, which is a very different film, um, but. Uh, should be fun. I mean, we both have shorts. I mean, it's a quintessential 80s film, isn't it? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, thanks for listening and join us next week. Cheers. Bye. Inconceivable. Son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, yeah. And before I forget, because I always forget, here's Rob telling you where you can actually find us. Yeah, so we're currently on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under Hey You Guys 80s or at Hey You Guys 80s. And we're also on, on email at heyyouguys80s at gmail.com. Please feel free to drop us any emails, any recommendations or any reviews you have. But whilst we're on about that, whenever you get your podcasts, please also smash the subscribe button. Yes, I said smash. 
It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Leave us a review and leave us some star. Uh, leave us some five star ratings as well. But make sure they're five star ratings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not interested in one star. Five star. If, if, if it's not going to be five star, don't go smashing anything. Just leave your opinion to yourself. Five star ratings only. But yeah, if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you next week. Are you going-